This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. First and foremost, you have to want to do it. It has to come from inside. It's not a superficial thing. People will figure out that you're a fake pretty quickly. Don't do it because you think you'll look good doing it. Do it because you really, it's in your heart and that you really want to do what you do. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac, the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with a unique golden drop capsule design. The Vintage Series V67 and V11 microphones offer Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a rich, warm sound to your studio with crisp clarity and detail that will make you wish that you had discovered these mics a whole lot sooner. Go to jayzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited time coupon ROCKS Star right now to get 50% off their vintage series microphones. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rock Stars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Rolf Sweep. Moved to Nashville originally as a musician, songwriter, and a small business owner, founding Technical Knockout Productions, a musician's accessory sales and manufacturing business, and then worked his way through real jobs in the industry as a cartage tech, freelance stagehand and stage manager, production manager with the Nashville Symphony, and working in and managing a number of music entertainment-based service businesses. In 2004, Rolf launched Blackbird Studios' audio equipment rental business with John McBride, and in 2015, assumed his current role as Blackbird Studio Manager, working with clients including major labels, publishing companies, indie artists and bands, film and video, production companies, and studio-themed events. Blackbird Studio was founded by John McBride in 2002 when he purchased Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Berry Hill, Tennessee. It now incorporates 11 studios, Blackbird Audio Rentals, and the Blackbird Academy Professional Audio Education Studio and Live Audio Divisions. I've known Rolf for nearly 25 years, and he has even helped me put together my Haybell studio at Bonnaroo before when we needed to rent lots of awesome gear. I'm psyched to learn more about managing a professional studio and gain some business wisdom and insights today on the podcast. 
Please welcome Rolf Zweep to Recording Studio Rockstars. Rolf, are you ready to rock, dude? Hey, Lidge, I am ready to rock. Sweet, man. Well, it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks. And um, it's been nice knowing you for 25 years, too. It's, so we finally get to hang out for a couple of hours uninterrupted. Crazy. I can't imagine that it was 25 years. That's pretty much I know. I think most of our conversations are either... Um, you know, in the moment of needing something from you, either as a rental company yeah. or as a studio or, um, you know, socializing at one of your awesome Christmas parties or something in, like that. In passing. In saying, passing, yeah. Been? And then the conversation changes with someone else. Indeed. Um, well, so tell, tell us more about how you came to Nashville. You know, I, I, this new to me, so I didn't really know much about you as a musician and songwriter. Mm. But um, talk about your, your interest in music and... Uh, also your interest in, you know, business that kind of brought you here originally. Right. Um, <clears throat> through the years, uh, and when I was much younger, I drew an interest in drums and, uh, in junior high, took drums in uh, junior high band and, um, sucked like everybody else, but still had a pretty driven interest in it. And hey, um, my daughter's doing drums in junior high band right now. Really? That's great. Percussion. Okay. So does she have a drum kit at the house? She, you know, she hasn't really gravitated towards the drum kit yet. Yeah. She likes playing the, the mallets and stuff. That was an adventure as a child because I got a drum kit through various ways. And um, we had a back room where I could practice them, but I wanted to take them up to my bedroom. So I got them up to my bedroom. And coincidentally, that room was directly above the family, the living room in the house. That was your first experience hauling your drums around? That must be. I never even thought about it that way. But yeah, and especially up steps, my favorite way to move equipment. So um, did that, learned like so many other people with guitar or drums and stuff to play along with records and your favorite records and learn those songs. And um, one thing led to another. And then just, of course, applying what I learned in band, different rudimentary skills and things like that. And as I got older... Played in a few bands with friends, kind of made up bands that never really played out and goof around bands. And um, one thing led to another after graduating from high school, um, got some bands together with friends and started playing clubs and wherever anybody would have us playing private parties or home parties and stuff like that. This is back in the 70s. So um, got to really love it and became pretty good at playing and playing with different bands and kind of being the pickup guy. Uh, when somebody didn't have a drummer, I would get that call frequently. And um, one thing led to another, and I just became uh, a better player, obviously, and um, met up with a friend who was in a town nearby, uh, and he had um, an Atari 5050 tape machine. Uh, so you were little, getting into the recording stuff, like, too. right. A little eight track, and you know, prior to that, it was just basically cassette decks and little reel to reels, and my dad's reel to reel. Yeah, that Atari fifty fifty is pretty badass. That's the half inch. Yeah. I think it's half inch eight track that was sort of like we had a it's a tabletop version, yeah. right? Yeah, it was like a little tabletop. I think that you could get a stand for it, but he had it on a tabletop. That was the first one I used too. Was it really? Yeah, they were great machines too, and they were just workhorses. It's rock solid. So he was always the engineer. It was his machine, and he always recorded. But I kind of learned some of the skills as a result of being there all the time. So we would find every opportunity um, to record. This was in rural Ohio, mind you. And he was a farm boy, but he was a great guitar player and a songwriter. 
And so he and I hit up a friendship and played together for many years in different bands, played um, VFWs and weddings and legions and wherever um, wherever we could get a gig, bars, of course, in different places around the area. And we were playing regularly at a VFW, and there was this guy who was the manager of the bar there, and he said he really liked the way we played, and we would play original songs along with a lot of cover stuff. And he said, man, I love some of those original songs you guys are doing. I want to pay for you guys to go record. So we were jumping with joy and we thought maybe we'll go to, you know, Columbus or Cincinnati to the big city or something. And he goes, where do you guys, if you had anywhere to record, where would you go? And Tim, my friend who was in the band, he piped up immediately and he said, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios. Oh, shit. Fame no Studios. way. And he sent us to Fame Studios. Wow. So that was my first experience in a real professional recording studio. And this isn't like hearing that story now where you guys went to Fame Studios as a th sort of a th uh, you know an, uh, a throwback gesture to no to this was nineteen seventy seven seventy eight something like that yeah, this is right at the height of Fame Studios right the only drawback was and it wasn't like at that time we didn't know I didn't know any better uh, Tim who was a songwriter played guitar but we had session musicians play for us so it's like that wasn't anything new then it's nothing new now you know where you have a band but the session musicians play the tracks and we sang. Um, so that actually happened twice with the same guy who he said, you know, we came back and we recorded it and it was a 45 and it was on jukeboxes around the area regionally. And wow. um, so then he said, man, I want to send you guys back down there again. So we went down for a second time and did another record, another 45. So naturally the bug was there. You know, I caught the bug and I was going, man, this is awesome. And, really, and you're also even, like, what was that big city we kept driving through on the way down to Muscle Shoals yeah. from Ohio? <laughs> so true. So true. Meaning um, Nashville. Of course. Yeah. Um, it kind of just breezed by, you know, we, we were on our way to Muscle Shoals. And yeah, we didn't all. have a bat building then. That's right. That's right. Um, but that's all that mattered at the time was getting down there. And I really don't. I mean, I knew what Muscle Shoals was and I knew what took place there in the years and why we why Tim was so into getting that place, uh, going there to record. So, um, in hindsight, it was pretty awesome. And it's kind of funny that now years later, I have sort of re-met those guys that played on the sessions who were the musicians. And I don't know if anybody knows about all pro electronics here in Nashville. There's a guy named Jimmy English. Oh, that's who runs right. Yeah. The place. He was the guitar player on those sessions. Oh, no shit. He was wow. Like, yeah. So well, who, a, are, who are some of the other players that played um, a guy named Chalmers Davis, who was a keyboard player, and um, Owen Hale played drums, and uh, don't remember. And was Rick Hall sort of running Rick the Hall session was there, for you? And but stuff? check it out—you probably know Walt Aldridge. He was the engineer. Oh, interesting. And okay. Walt is—I've seen him now in years past, and he vaguely remembered it, you know. And I, you know, you don't want to tell him every time you see him. Hey, remember me? I'm that guy. But you know, <laughs> we know each other now, and. We just, you know, got a history and it's always nice to see him. Yeah. But so that was my first taste of the studio. And then so that kind of inspired us even more. And what, not, hold on. Let me, let me pause you for one sec. Sure. Give us a couple of sort of landmark indicators about like what was, why was fame important to you at the time? Just, just in case the rock stars didn't already hear my fame. Oh, fame was home to so many uh, records and artists who had recorded there. Um, Aretha Franklin, 
uh, for one. Um, pretty sure the Stones did some stuff there. Um, Bob Dylan, pretty sure Jimmy Buffett had done some stuff down there through the years. Yeah, so these were all artists that, that were like high on your radar at that right, time, too. Right, they were big inspirations to us. And then also, um, oh, you know, it just kind of came back to me just now that um, they told us that the band that was playing for us, that the session players, that was Mac Davis's band. So, and at that time, Mac Davis was a pretty big deal. I mean, he was a big time songwriter, had some big radio hits. Um, I don't know if anybody listening recognizes that name, but Google Mac Davis, and he's an icon songwriter in the country music business. He's, nice. Um, well, so how'd you end up in Nashville then? What, what was the progression from so there to Nashville? Then we said, man, we got to get in the music business, you know, working day jobs. And I was working in a lumber mill um, for like seven or eight years after I graduated from high school. And the, when I was working on weekends and playing music, I was making more money doing that than I was working five days a week in the lumber mill. So I, You know, a lumber mill is just a recording studio that hasn't been, you know, fully realized yet. That's all. <laughs> we were just making parts for our future <laughs> recording We were just making studios. the parts. <laughs> but um, that was truly an experience, too, working in a lumber mill, for that matter. So um learned a lot of woodworking skills and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so um, that was in my hometown or actually a town where I grew up, which was a teeny tiny little town that still exists. It's called New Knoxville, Ohio. And the lumber company still exists in some form. And coincidentally, one of my brothers still works there. So, um, but I, you know, I was there and I kept wanting to realize a dream that I had of playing music and just doing it professionally. And, you know, that's, it's a lot of people's dreams. I know that. And I realize that. But I think if you want something bad enough, you just go after it with all you have. Yeah. You know, it's it's got to be inside of you to want to really want to do something. So my friend and I talked and um, I was married at the time and uh, talked to my wife and we went back and forth about it. And I said, man, you know, we should move to Nashville. You know, it's close. If we do want to come home for any reason, it's not that far away. It's only six or seven hours drive. Um. And we kept talking about it, kept talking about it. And of course, we ended up in Nashville. And um, prior to coming here, the I feel like the thing that I, if I have to give anybody advice about moving to a anywhere for any reason, go there a bunch of times and discover the area and make sure it's a place you want to be. Um, we already knew what we wanted to do, but we wanted to make sure that it was a place we wanted to be. I so, guess I did that too. When I moved down to Nashville, I came down a bunch of times. No, not a bunch of times, but um, I came down. Uh, first, I found out about MTSU, and then I uh, wanted to come down and have a look, you know, and see right. what it looked like. Right. And I came down for a week, and my dad was a obscure story, but my dad, I'll make it quick. My dad was a Unitarian minister, and they had like this inside the Unitarian church Airbnb kind of network. Uh -huh. So then he found out about some people who like offered up, you know, a spare oh, a room where I could sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor oh, cool. in the back room for, for the week I was here. Yeah. So I was yeah. staying in Hillsborough village and I got to see it and it was cool oh, enough for me. It's a great place to be staying too, if you're yeah. coming to town. Yeah. It just seemed like a hip place. Back then it was. But I still felt like I moved down here and was clueless too. Yeah. Know? Well, I, I just kind of um, naturally gravitated toward Nashville, but Every time that we would come down, I would always meet somebody new, and it was just a new connection. And I don't know 
what made me do it. I guess it was just a just who I am and how I do stuff. I just wrote down everybody I met and what they were, what who they were, what they've done, phone number, email didn't exist then. Nice. So you were you were you were kind of organized from the get go. I wanted the gig, you know. I definitely wanted to come here and work and get into the music business. And um, so every time we came, I did that, and I met somebody new or several people, and just started building the network. Yeah. Kind of unknowingly, but. Do you remember doing follow ups with people too? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I would call from when I was in Ohio and um, try to find jobs, find a pickup gig here or there, and doing stuff. And so by the time we actually physically moved everything here, I had some people to talk to. Um, it didn't happen overnight. I didn't start working or doing sessions or playing uh, anything overnight that like anywhere else, you know, even if it's something you decide you want to do, you have to work it. Yeah, you got to put in the time. Definitely. Um, well, cool. So you came down here and your first thought was play drums, be a musician. Right. Um, songwriting too. So did you, did you want to, um, be a songwriter and, and have your songs in a publishing company and all that kind of stuff? That sort of traditional Nashville. Really? I didn't know all that much about that when I first came here. I just wanted to play music and be a part of a creative environment and learn what that all entails. So I met up with songwriters. I met up with people who needed a drummer. You know, and then suddenly somebody said, hey, we're writing another song. Come on over. And suddenly I was one of those people helping to write the song or creative ideas, input, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, so um, we got a little ways to go here before we get to Blackbird. But, sure. um, you know, you you took on some sort of admin or, you know, the 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 office side of of the music industry at yeah, some I point. Think, along I the think way. some of that was kind of in me already, but it kind of that card started to happen later on. Um, just quickly, if I can back up, um, before I left Ohio, I purchased a set of electronic Simmons drums. They were the Simmons Fives. Nice. You remember those? Do, 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 exactly. Do, do, yeah. Because I heard them on the radio and I read about them in Modern Drummer Magazine and all this stuff. And I'm going, I really got to have those. I really want them. And being the inquisitive guy, I spent like 3500 bucks on a brand new set of Simmons drums. Were they, uh, were they triangle drums they hexagonal. or hexagonal yeah, drums? Yeah, and they yeah. were black, and it was a Simmons 5. And, um, man, I was just king shit, you know. I just thought that was, like, the best thing. So being as curious as I am sometimes about stuff like that, I the day I bought them, I took one of the pads apart because I had to see how it worked. I thought, how does this, you know, how does that, you hit it, this hard plastic disc thing, and the next day, I had taken one of the triggers out and was hitting on it and stuff and left it plugged in. I went, okay, so this is the thing. And I thought, well, what if I stick that in my acoustic drums and just hit my drum? And at the same time, I have I can mic my acoustic drum and I can have an electronic impulse at the same time triggering the the head. So you, you know, sort of extracted the little trigger out, yeah. out of the, the Simmons plastic very, drum? Very carefully, yeah. <laughs> it was just a naked little piezo trigger. It's, yeah, uh, it's probably element. just a little pie. Now you know yeah. more. Now you're like, oh, that's a cheap-ass piezo chip that you, right. can, you can get. You could sneeze one of those out. Right, exactly. So when I looked at it, I thought, man, that's all it is. I didn't really know what it was or the technology or anything. So I stuck it in my acoustic drum, in the snare drum first, and it didn't really sound great in the snare drum. And I thought, well, I'll put it in my kick drum put it in the kick drum near the head and started experimenting with that. And soon I had 
taken all of those elements out of each of the pads and stuck them in my acoustic drums. So, so you um, were the first guy in Nashville with a hybrid drum kit. You no, think? this was actually still in Ohio when I was still in Ohio. Yeah, you were the only guy in Ohio right. with a hybrid drum. And kit. so I was going to some of the gigs. This is very soon, or like very near the time when I was leaving Nashville. And there were people calling me saying, we want that guy. We want that guy to play our gig with the crazy sounding drum kit. So I was playing through a custom bass amp, like those great big with the 215s or 218s in it, I think. Yeah. Custom 200. And padded sides. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I did that. And then I came to Nashville and I was getting gigs because of that, you know. So that was pretty crazy. And then when I came to Nashville... Of course, I wasn't playing music, making a living right away, so I had to find a job. So, you know, I found a um, pre-internet, of course, pre-email, all that stuff. I found an ad in the Tennessean or in the banner or something, and it was it said, work in the music business, um, studio job or something like that. It was just really basic little ad in the classified job section. So I thought, well, why not? Let me see what that is. And it turns out it was a cartage service. It was Nashville's first Cartage service. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So um, describe what cartage is. Because when I moved here, well, I think it still exists probably pretty pretty uh, powerfully, yeah. but uh, but it was an introduction for me too. And I thought it was cool because you, if you got a cartage gig, it meant you were walking into all the recording studios and and, and, and really with all I the had musicians. no idea what I was getting myself into. You know, I, I do after I did the interview and all that kind of stuff. And well, hold on, tell the rock stars what cartage oh, sorry, is. You're right, right. So cartage is it's really musicians' cartage. Um, it is warehousing musicians' equipment, primarily session musicians. And when they call, they say, "I've got a ten o'clock at Blackbird Studio tomorrow," and you pack up their drums or their guitar amps and guitars or whatever their music, whatever their instrument is, put it on a van and take it to the studio and set it up for them or deliver it however they see fit. And sometimes producers with big racks. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was back then and engineers as well. Yeah. There were a lot of engineers who carried all their own gear and um, we were the guys to bring it in there and put it in the control room, unlit it, maybe snake it together. And then the assistant engineer would be there with the ends that you would give them to patch it in. Um, so that's what Musicians Cartage is. So we were Nashville's first Musicians Cartage service. It was called Picker's Pickup. Nice. <laughs> which um, I had nothing to do with naming, but the, just the same. Um, we had a couple of vans and a big Q-back truck and... We were the only people in town, and I had no clue whose gear I was going to be hauling. And the first time I walked in there, um, they said, okay, let's go. Let's go out to the warehouse and start loading gear up. And I start looking around at the road cases in the storage area. And it's because they had shown me the storage area, and I didn't really get to look up close and personal at it when I interviewed. And so I'm walking around in there, and I look, and it says, there's cases that says Eddie Bears, James Stroud. Michael Rhodes, you know, all these A session players back then. This was 1983, 84, something like that. And I'm thinking, I've seen all these guys' names on records that I've been looking at album credits of. Um, so I know that the first studio that I went to was Ronnie Millsap's place, which is now, well, they still call it Ronnie's place. It's next door to Soundstage, and it's gone through different uh, transformations since then. Um, and I was delivering Larry London's drums, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure Michael Rhodes was a bass player. Um, and then just started meeting people that way by, like you said, you know, coming in the back door at a studio and you're just the gear delivery guy. And pretty soon small talk leads to a conversation and a friendship. And they start seeing you repeatedly. Right. So you get to know the engineer, you get to know the producer who's a familiar face, you get to know the person at the front desk, which is awesome because the next time you can go in the front door, if you're just bringing over, you know, a guitar amp or something like that, you don't have to use the load end or the dock or anything. So I, as I said, I really didn't know what I was getting into until I started realizing, man, I'm meeting all these people and they're just like me. They're just like, you know, a musician wanting a gig. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I, I met all these names and all these people just almost by falling into a job. Um, I was just talking to somebody at the studio today. It's pretty awesome that I've been in Nashville now for 35 years plus, and I'm still calling people on that contact list that I started way back when. Is it still, is it still the, like the, the, the phone list? Remember we used to always have like a piece of paper that was duct taped to the wall near the, near the, uh, it was, the dorm room phone. <laughs> oh, right, right. Well, back then I had a, remember the day runners? Um, like well, the planners, the, the schedule Oh, planners? yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And it had a little address book in the back. And if you were lucky, you could zip it closed. Right, right, that's right. And then Velcro came along, and that was sensational. Oh, yeah. So, um. But you know Velcro was, came from the aliens, you know, back in Is that right? Know, 50s I thought it was developed by NASA, by the space I program. It, I thought it was. I thought they learned. I thought they picked it up from the aliens <laughs> that crash landed at Roswell. <laughs> Could be. Could Somebody be. listening to this knows the answer. Yeah. Well, it was along with that metal that you could crumple up and then it would just lay flat again as soon as you let go of it. Ooh, that Supposedly that's good. what those alien spaceships are made of. They oh, I like the sound of that. just like go um, rock stars. Yeah. If you know the answer and you're listening to this on YouTube or at the blog post, just drop a comment in. We got to know. know. We got to know. Yeah. We got to know. minds. That's right. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode all right so you're meeting all these people you got this the perfect gig for sort of uh introducing yourself to yeah, a, a new community know, you know just... um do, i don't know if you meant to come back to this later but i but i do want to ask you the question have you, are you aware, I mean, and we're getting to what your gig is now where, you know, you're sort of, sure, yeah. you've come a long way, um, but you certainly interact with new and young people who are starting out who are in your shoes and they're in, they're in what used to be your shoes now. So um, Definitely, yeah. what advice do you have for them about similar kinds of opportunities that you've seen for um, sort of entering the music wow, biz yeah. and how to, how to meet people like that? Uh, first and foremost, you have to want to do it. You, there's a, it has to come from inside. It's not a superficial thing. People will figure out that you're a fake pretty quickly. Um, 
don't do it because you think you'll look good doing it. Do it because you really, it's in your heart and that you really want to do what you do. Um, you know, I really wanted to play drums and then this is kind of leading up with the Simmons, uh, set and all that and the, the, the trigger elements and all that. What I did was I researched it. I went to the library and I looked up in parts books and anywhere I could find information about where you could buy those parts, more of them. And I bought more of them. I found a, a connection in, well, it was in New York, I think, or somewhere on the East Coast that had a connection with Japan. And they ended up sending me a bunch of those raw elements. And I started making my own triggers, sticking them in my other drum kits and other drums. And then I went to some of those drummers I was working with and I said, hey, look what I'm doing. And Larry London, who I don't know if uh, a lot of you guys know who he is. He was a pretty renowned drummer. He's an amazing session player, live player. Um, Any particular records you remember off the top of your head? I know it's not putting you on the spot, but. Um, gosh, he's played on tons of, them, of country yeah. hits, but like he played on Steve Perry's um, Oh Sherry, if anybody remembers that. That's All like right. one of the big things that um, he was pretty renowned for the, the drum sound on that particular record. Right on. He had like signature licks and stuff like that. Uh, he had this one thing where he had a one-handed hi-hat roll that was just tremendous that was on that O'Sherry hit. So if you listen closely, listen to the hi-hat on that. It's pretty awesome. Just a couple of places where he just drops it in there and you go, that's London. So anyway, I uh, befriended him and he was just a sensational guy. He's just He was never too busy to stop and talk to somebody. You'd see him in a drum shop or something like that. And you go, hey, Larry, and you go, hey, what you been doing? You know, what what sticks are you using now? Or what you know, what drums are you playing? It was always that conversation surround drums. So he said, man, I've been doing that too. And he had discovered what the, the elements were, the trigger elements. And he had also been experimenting with sampling, like early, early, early sampling. And um, showed me a few things that he had done. And where he would take a sample and he would chop it down, truncated is what it was called back then. It had, uh, that's when some of the Akai samplers were coming around, like the S900 and the 1000s and all that. Um, so he would, he would sample everyday sounds and use them for the back end of a snare or something like that, where he would trigger it from his, from his snare drum as well. So we shared in that, and then pretty soon some of these other drummers were going, man, if London's doing it and he's using it on sessions, let me get Rolf to put some triggers in my drums. So I was putting triggers in all these guys' drums, and that's what started the whole technical knockout business. Nice. So I, was, I started doing that, and then pretty soon people said, man, I don't have a quarter-inch snake that I can plug into these things and run over to my, I need that to run to my Simmons brain or to whatever electronics brain they were triggering. So I thought, okay. So I befriended, uh, found the Horizon Cable Company in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Called them up, found a guy there, and he said, yeah, we can build custom snakes. We can build them whatever you want. So I was the middleman, but I was like making the arrangements of, I need a snake with eight channels, quarter inch snake and XLR on the other end and that kind of stuff. So I really wasn't, I had made a few of them, but I found it was more efficient to just go to the manufacturer and have them custom made and drop ship them to the. Why do you think you felt so comfortable calling up a company and finding the right person at a manufacturer like that? Because and, and I looked around in the stores happen. and I looked around in the studios and I thought, well, there's a snake. I can, I can find a source for that, you know, easily. And a lot of the studios were making their own snakes and stuff. So I learned how to do that. Um, 
but I just thought there's got to be an easier way. I don't have to spend all these hours building custom snakes, and this guy wants it this way, and this one wants it this way. So it wasn't because you grew up around manufacturing and, and you were you could not so much walk no. right through a plan, know exactly where you're going. It's more just like you just had to use the wherewithal to say like, out. Yeah. there's got to be an easier way. I'll right. go figure it out. Right. That's cool. So that happened and technical knockout happened. And then I, um, so I don't even remember really exactly how it happened. I'm an effects freak and I'll, we can get into that later if you want. But I love synths and I love distorted sound and crazy noises and things like that. Drives my wife crazy. So <laughs> all the same. Um, but so I loved stomp boxes and I would look at guitar players use them. And I always, this is even through the years before I even got to Nashville, I always thought, man, what if you ran a vocal through there? Or what if you ran another instrument or another sound through that? What would that do? And I would experiment with that frequently. So um, just out of sort of how it ended up going that direction was I thought, well, if I'm a cable dealer, I can also be a dealer for that. So I approached Jim Dunlop and approached uh, Electroharmonics and a bunch of pedal manufacturers in the, at that time. And I said, well, I'm an independent guy. I just started, and this is in the early days of websites, like when websites were almost unheard of. Yeah. And I said, we're well, still in the 80s at this point? Yeah, late 80s, wow. very late 80s. And I said, um, early early to mid 90s, actually. Right, right. Um, so I said, I've got this dealership that I want to start to grow. And um, they jumped right on board. They just thought sales, you know, and this guy's in Nashville. He can sell for us. So I never really wanted to compete against stores. I just wanted to have a business of my own. And um, long story short, I did sell a lot of that stuff, and I did do a lot of that. But when the electronic drum thing kind of fell off, um, then the business kind of waned, and I was having more interest in the jobs that I was doing. And my family was growing somewhat. And um, so I just thought, you know, I'm going to go with a more regular job. And at that time, I had been doing cartage for uh, Picker's Pickup had closed, and I went to a company called SIR, which still exists now. Um, at that time, it was called Studio Instrument Rentals, where we had backline gear for bands, we had rehearsal rooms, and we did cartage. We had a cartage division. That's kind of how I got over there through the cartage thing, and then slowly became a night manager, a rehearsal tech, and then I was using my technical knowledge by setting up rooms and rehearsals and right, right. again, meeting more people and this time more live people and building my contact list and my database. And now, is that where you met John McBride? Cause wasn't no, he, it wasn't no, his was start many, live? Many years, that was many years later. Um, so to fast forward, sort of, I did the SIR thing. Um, I helped, uh, there's a guy named Harry McCarthy who came here from LA and started a company called drum paradise. And he and I met, through one night doing cartage somewhere and he goes, Hey man, I'm bringing my, I'm taking half the company and the other dude in LA is staying there. So I'm starting drum paradise, Nashville. Do you want to come work for me? Cause he knew I'd been doing some drum teching work and stuff like that for people. So I worked for him for two years and did that and kind of helped get that. I was in part of getting that company off the ground. Harry's a workhorse too, man. He's awesome. And it's a great company. And they are still a very solid company and doing cartage and drum rentals and all yeah, kinds of stuff yeah, for all kinds I've of people. I've worked with them in the past. It's an awesome place. It's, it's yeah. very cool to have 
specialized things like that yeah, where you, you can don't, just say, you know, we just want to get our drums killer. Yeah. Just call one you place. You walk in and that warehouse and they do cartage and delivery service and stuff like that for guitar players and bass players and people like that too. But they specialize in drums and you walk in that warehouse and it's just drum cases, floor to ceiling. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and Harry's been on the road with a lot of really big acts. Like he was uh, Max Weinberg's drum tech for years with Springsteen on the road. And he's been out with Keith Urban and, you know, a lot of really big artists. And so um, that was kind of his bread and butter gig. And the Drum Paradise thing was the thing that he had, the business that he had here in Nashville. And he always had a manager running that. So we were kind of kind of small. We were out by Soundcheck out there on Cowan Street. And um, we were sharing a warehouse with another business. But it grew pretty rapidly. And he had a really great clientele. Um, and then... Uh, let me think about this. I'm trying to think how that went. It's almost in reverse. Prior to that, I was at SIR and a gig came up that um, the Nashville Symphony was looking for a production manager. All right. Yeah. Tell us about the working with the symphony. So that's that was, that be was pretty prior cool. to Drum Paradise. We're kind of going back and forth, but it's all right. It's uh, all right. We got we got to we got to uh, get to the, the good questions about running studios and stuff here. Yeah, too. So. that's right. So the, the quick story on the symphony is I was a production manager with them for four years and again, adding to that contact list. And I met all kinds of classical players and, a, and even a deeper appreciation for classical music um, that I'd really loved it before um, and really taught me a lot about tuning, about appreciation of tuning an instrument properly and keeping it there. Interesting. So yeah. that was a pretty awesome experience. And um, so after that... Um, that's when I went to Drum Paradise. So Drum and Paradise. And that was, uh, we had Skirmerhorn Symphony Hall at that point? No, that was prior to that. Prior to that. Yeah, okay, it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy that the symphony had just gone through bankruptcy and we were, I was part of the team that was bringing it back. Um, so that was pretty interesting. One year was at War Memorial, which I could tell you tons of stories. We could have another show about that. <laughs> and um, then another three years at TPAC. And while I was at TPAC, I was always picking up freelance gigs on the side, um, learning live theater, you know, chops yeah, and stuff yeah. like that and learning all kinds of stuff there. And that was an awesome experience as well. Well, so, so um, fast, yes. Yeah. Fast forward to that. Then after Drum Paradise, um, I went independent for a while and did a lot of freelance stuff and then um, went to a company called Underground Sound. There was yeah, a, I remember there Underground, were pro, yeah. pro audio rental yeah. company. Yeah, and that was your and, first introduction to audio rentals like right, that, right? Right. So I they opened a cartage division, which I started with them. And then as a result of that, we were moving a lot of audio gear and looking at their audio inventory was just like, man, I got a serious bug then on that. Started learning about all that stuff. And um what kind then, of stuff were you renting? What were some common things that would get rented oh out gosh. at that point? Uh, Neve 1073s, 1081s, U47s, C12s, um, U67s. We were also um, tail end of the ADAT We had era. ADAT machines, yeah. And uh, the PCM800s, the Sony, multi, the modular yeah. A-Tracks, yeah. Um, this which was were a, basically D88s with XLR connectors. Now, uh, maybe we'll put some context on it. <clears throat> I feel like this also... Um, paralleled the growth of home studios and it people was. people working from Definitely. you know personal studio spaces mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's like 
now I just need a computer and an interface and some sort of, you know, way to be able to work from home or maybe, maybe ADATs or whatever and a simple mixer. But you know, then like for the, for the high end stuff, I just call a rental company and go rent a pair of 1073s for a couple of days and record with it or whatever. It was the same concept of what rental gear is now. Yeah, definitely that. Um, But even back in the days when I'd first came to town and was doing those early days of cartage and stuff, we were still delivering to home studios. There were a lot of home studios. I remember there was one on 32nd Avenue where a guy had um, a two inch, a 24 track machine. And it was this funky basement and he was doing demos for Warner brothers, a lot of stuff there. So after um, seeing all these home studios and moving through all that, let's fast forward to um, working at underground sound. Uh, The, at, after several years, this manager there um, decided to leave and they needed another manager. So they asked me to manage the, the business. So then I was managing the pro audio rental side and uh, we had a cartage guy that took over. Um, and then several years into that, um, I worked there for about seven or eight years, something like that. Um, We were going to, there was this guy who came to Nashville to Berry Hill and bought a studio. It was called Creative Recorders and uh, a guy named John McBride. Everybody knew him from the live world. And we had found out that he was building this pretty amazing inventory of gear, of pro audio recording gear. Yeah. A lot of outboard gear, a lot of vintage mics and stuff. And so we were trying to fill orders for different clients for uh, audio rental gear. And sometimes we didn't have everything that they were asking for. So somebody got the wild idea, hey, let's call up McBride and see if he's got whatever it was that we needed, a compressor or Now, I'll make a quick free. comment, too, because because huh? I had a conversation with John once in the in the lounge there over at Blackbird, and, and he um, I asked him about this acquiring all the gear stuff. And, and my conversation was maybe around 2005 or something like that. Yep. And he, and he, he made this comment. He said something about, you know, like, well, you know, um, you know, my my advisor or something said that, you know, investments are not doing so good. So I'd rather just invest in, in vintage gear, you know? And mm-hmm. it was like, and now that I'm thinking about the context, we're talking about like, you know, this is post dot com bubble. Right. You know? So like the, right. the traditional ways of investing your money wisely weren't looking so good. Right. So anyway, here's somebody who's saying like, you know what, I'm just going to, I really believe in, all this vintage audio equipment that now we kind of take for granted almost, you know, and I'm going to, I, I want to invest in this and create something really, really unique. Yep. That's ex- exactly right. He, he wise purchases because they have a lot of that stuff has appreciated. Um, so, okay. So we're at this other company, this underground sound and we call John and said, Hey man, do you have an, uh, another pair of 1073s or whatever it is that we were looking for? And they went, yeah. We said, you want to rent it? We got an order we need to fill. And they were kind of hesitant at first and then slowly understood, man, we might be able to make some money doing this. So I would go over there. And at the time, Vance Powell was the studio manager and chief engineer, recording engineer. And he and I kind of got to know each other. And just through these short visits of getting gear, and I was over there one time and I was picking up or dropping off something. And I said, you guys are crazy if you don't start a rental division. You've got so much cool gear. It's ridiculous that it's just sitting on the shelf doing nothing for you. Right. And you had experience with rentals. You knew that it right. could totally work. And I said, if you ever think about doing it, I'd like to take a crack at it. So um, 
a few months later, John called me up and he said, hey, what you doing? I want to come on over. And I thought he was going to bitch me out for a past due bill or something. And I'm thinking, okay, so I go over there and kind of tail between my legs. And he goes, what's going on, man? I said, well, just renting gear like usual. The conversation starts and about three minutes in, he goes, I'm thinking about doing that that rental company you're talking about. And I need an inventory manager. So let's see if we can do this. That's pretty wild. And so it took me about five seconds and I went, all right, let's give it a shot. And um, April 1st, 2004, I started working for him. So I just passed 15 years at Blackbird. Wow, man. So um, that's the fast story at Blackbird. I've managed the rental department for <clears throat> about 11 or 12 years. And then the studio manager at the time decided he wanted to get out of the music business. It was a very pleasant parting. He just wanted to do something else. And I do see him occasionally from time to time. I just saw him last week, as a matter of fact. Um, he's doing great. But anyway, McBride came to me and he goes, hey, uh, what do you think? You want to tr give this a shot? And I said, sure, let's go. That's a Because I knew the and studio. That's, that's I knew where everything was. Transitioning and, from the rental to the studio management. Right, correct. Okay, cool. Well, um, awesome stories, man. I love hearing your whole progression of like coming through Nashville and also just hearing about all these places, some of which I remember, some of which, you know, are new to me. With, mm -hmm. And uh, it's a great, great story. So let's take a break for a second, then we'll come back in, in a minute for the jam session. Uh, Rockstar is a reminder that we'll have links to stuff we're talking about in the show notes. Um, and I put together like a, a little YouTube playlist, too, um, of some videos just giving you tours of Blackbird and stuff like that so you can get a better sense of the place where Ralph is now. And we'll see you in just a minute for the jam session. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting colorations and 
distortions. Make sure to check out the Vintage Series V67 and V11 with Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a classic, expensive vintage sound to your studio for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, you can use the coupon code ROCKSTAR to get 50% off their Vintage Series microphones. I got one. You're hearing my voice right now on the V67. Wouldn't it feel great to have one of these in your studio? Go to jzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below. So we're back now for the jam session. My guest today joining us is Rolf Zweep, who is managing Blackbird Studio. Um, that's funny because you guys call it Blackbird Studio singular or, singular. or mono. Yeah. I mean, uh, mono. I can't I get my mix up my singing. I just call singular mono these <laughs> days. <laughs> um, but yet you have 11 studios there. That happened because the, uh, the, word, the words Blackbird Studio has a number of letters that's divisible by three. That is, is um, John is a bit of a numbers freak, and he always has been. It's actually kind of cool. It's kind of fun a lot of times. So um, especially early on, he was he was pretty focused on that. And um, So Blackbird Studio is divisible by three. Correct. And that's Blackbird important. Blackbird has There's nine a, letters. And the Blackbird Studio also has, has six. does it have three uh, little toes on the footprint? Or Correct. is it? Ah, yeah. I'm putting it all together now. See, so that worked. Um, don't even know if that's a real blackbird footprint, but it works. You know, probably look more like chicken's feet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how many holes do we have in a reel of tape? Uh, a lot of them have three. Yeah, that's true. Mine. Oh, mine this has one right over here. Two. Got two. That one's got three over there on the flange. Yeah, the one that has two, we'll just call that a failure. The one that has three, <laughs> we'll call it a good one. But you know, he's he is somewhat superstitious. If I can just say some something on the sidebar here for him. Um, he doesn't like specific numbers, but if it's not a number that will add up or work for him, he'll just go, well, it's not unlucky. So that's pretty entertaining, too. Right, right. So. Um, well, very cool. Uh, I just forgot what my question is. What's my, what's my next question? You're, you're managing the studio now. And um, I did want to ask you one more question about rentals, though, before sure. we kind of migrate yeah, over. Yeah, go there all day if you yeah. want. What's the, what's the strangest thing you ever had to rent or ship? Oh wow! Or anything like that. Anything come off, come to mind? Uh, man, that's really a tough question because all of it made sense. You know, all yeah. of it was just kind of kind of business. If if I can just just say something for like thirty seconds, sure. The strangest thing I ever delivered was at the original cartridge company where I worked. Um, we got a call from, uh, well, the boss came to me and he said, "You know where Johnny Cash lives?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, go drive out there. He's got something for you to take to the place that he wants you to take it to. Okay. So I went out to Mr. Cash's house, drove into the driveway. <clears throat> Johnny Cash is standing out there in the driveway. He goes, hey, how you doing? Introduced myself. He goes, come on around back here and drive the van back here to the shed. And he had a cage. He had a great big cage with two peacocks in it. And he said, put these on the van and take them out to Roseanne's house. And he had given them to Roseanne, his daughter, for her birthday. Wow. And I, as far as I recall, it was a surprise. So I put him on the van and drove out. He was north of town. I went south of town and drove into the driveway. And Roseanne comes outside and she goes, Daddy tells me you're delivering something for my birthday. And I said, yeah. 
got out the back of the van and pulled the cage of the peacocks out. And she goes, that's amazing. You know, she's just blown away. That's awesome. And I, so strangest thing I've ever delivered. I don't it, know about shit. It's probably, it's probably good that the story didn't involve. And then like my, I got a flat tire on the highway yeah. and then I was trying to get the jack out and all of a sudden the cage <laughs> popped open and, and then the peacocks took off on <laughs> highway 40. <laughs> That's no, kind that's of about it, but that was definitely the strangest thing I've ever carted around in the van. That's wild, man. Well, um, all right, so let's talk about studios, man. Okay, yeah. Um, what does it mean to manage a studio? Wow. What are some responsibilities if you were to break it down? Um, Briefly. I guess overall, the switch is in the on position continuously. That's about the best umbrella statement I can make about it. And you always have to be on. Um, and that's a really challenging thing. And it was something I really had to learn pretty quickly, even though I come from, I guess you'd say studio and show business and all that kind of stuff background in the event of managing a studio, especially of this capacity, this size and volume, um, I, I'm responsible for actively booking seven rooms of those studio, all the studios that we have. Um, there's a couple of private rooms that just kind of stay on a lease and they kind of take care of themselves and just have to monitor that business, of course. But the seven rooms are two tracking rooms, um, a mix room, and four overdub edit mix rooms. And they, as everybody knows, you know, when you work in the box, there are a lot of different ways you can use those rooms. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, you have to be on all the time because people are calling you all the time. As we're sitting here, I've got my phone up here on the music stand in front of me and I'm seeing text come in and calls come in. So um, I know that as soon as I leave here, when I get in my car, there's going to be a bunch of answers that I have to give yeah. for whatever it is. And it could yeah. be somebody calling from Texas wanting to book a studio next week, or it could be one of the assistants saying, hey, is this tape machine or is this Pro Tools rig going here or what's going on? And so at any given time in all those seven studios, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, for instance, right now, the very well-known Studio C Mastenberg room with all the sticks in it, the room with the most nicknames, as we call it. Yeah. Um, we're putting a different console in there. So Richard, our chief tech, is in there assembling a console, but we've got room left over on the floor while that's happening. So we're doing a tape transfer for some clients from Detroit. And they wanted to do it with two AA27 Studers. So we've got those set up in there with a Pro Tools rig, and they brought the reels of tape. So that's what's going on in that room right now. I do know that um, in another studio we had... Uh, a band in this morning. Um, it was an artist's live band, and they were tracking something for CMT, I think, something like that. So that's an, that's one of the tracking rooms. And the other tracking room had, um, we've got the Blackbird Academy, which is our educational arm at the studio. We had a class in there, and they were tracking all day. Um, then in one of the other studios was Studio E was vacant today. Studio F, there was a mix going on. That's Studio F mix room. Um, let's see, which ones did I miss? Studio B had a project going on in it today. and um, That's right. I've worked in Studio A and Studio B in the past. Yeah, B is the small room up front that has a little API Legacy Plus in it. Yeah. 
and uh, great little mix room and great overdub room. And I know small room, but it still it still gets its own giant pair of ATC speakers. That's right, and and it even has a dedicated echo chamber. Yeah, and that echo chamber is awesome. A lot of people overlook that and don't realize what they can do with that. And if you just crack that door open, that little ISO room turns into something pretty special. Um, and then one of the things, of course, that's fun is, you know, we're mixing in there and there's a rack off to the, the side, the left and behind me where I was mixing, um, mixing on a legacy API console. Mm-hmm. And then um, and we had uh, our assistant was John. I don't know if you remember. Um, I'll, come, I'll circle back on that because okay. he's somebody I want to have on All the right. show now. Um, but it, but uh, we just, were, you know, it's like, hey, what do you guys mm-hmm. want for uh, any extra gear? And it's like, oh, yeah. We get w- walked over and you walk into a closet and it's just shelves and racks on either side. And and I guess, uh, I don't think we went over to the rental part. I think this was just what, near what the studios. What year was that? Well, this was 2008 or okay. something like that. Or maybe okay. maybe even five. Maybe it was about then. Because when the, like if if I can back up a little bit, there's there's a room that's right behind the tech shop. That's, that's a, where it was. That's where all okay. the gear was. Yeah, that was the original Blackbird Audio Rentals location. Okay, that was it's a hundred yeah. square feet, yeah. and there was a there was gear Tiny. shelves on three walls, and one of the shelves was open because that was my desk. Oh, and, I think I remember that actually. I think I remember and that. It's still, now if you go back there, it's packed with all kinds of spare spare gear and all kinds of stuff. But Richard, yeah. our tech, uses that for storage. Well, it was fun. Um, we just walked in and it was like a kid in a candy shop. We're like, well, we'll ta- let me let me try that and we'll take that and I'll yeah. try that and I'll put that on the kick drum. And then um, John would set it all up for us in the back, patch it all in. And, th- and the really amazing thing was, um, I think we were mixing for a few days or something like that. And then on the third day, we were, we were doing some recalls and I just told him which one we needed to recall and we we were off somewhere, and we show up forty five minutes later, and he had that mix recalled on the console <laughs> with all that gear and the settings and everything, and it was right on. It was pretty incredible, but it was just a fun experience. So, mm-hmm. well, so you you have just a first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking time <laughs> out welcome. to join us on the show I'm, like I'm this. Glad to be here. Um, it's a, a huge uh, a huge gesture and gift on your end. And then you know the sound of the studio is just. What a massive bunch of stuff to coordinate. Hmm. Um, if you were just to, you know, count off the top of your head how many people you're trying to coordinate at this moment or in the studio, maybe on staff, you know, you it's know, a lot, isn't it? Th- that comes to saying that you got to have a really badass staff. And I couldn't do it without those people, you know. And um, John's really good surrounding himself with really great people. And that's so important, you know, and everybody has their job. Everybody, you have to rely on somebody else to do something. And knowing that you can say this has to be done and all that's pretty much all you have to say and it gets done. That's it's not like a power thing or an ego thing at all. It's just more about trusting somebody else to take that responsibility and run with it and know that it'll be done right. Yeah, you can't you you can't. do the job while they're doing the job too. Or Correct. Else, or it's, else it's really, really is teamwork and it takes a really well-oiled machine to work that way. So, um, it, and it goes all the way from the person at the front desk who's the first person to see the client when they come in the door. You want that person to be genuine and kind and helpful and all that stuff. Um, that's so important. First impressions are everything, right? Yeah, so, totally. So um, behind all of that, our chief tech is amazing. The guy that I mentioned before, Richard Ely, 
He is an old school guy, and that's what you want when you've got gear like this around the place that needs attention. He can pretty much troubleshoot stuff over the phone. That's pretty cool. You know, so he's you can just tell him the symptoms of something, and he'll go, oh, yeah, that's probably this. And then he comes in to fix it the next day or an hour later if he's got to be there to do it, if it's necessary. And he's usually right. He's usually spot on about it. And then also, like, operations manager, Polly Simmons, who's amazing. He's also, he kind of came on early on when he started. He was a drum tech because we have the, this massive drum collection. And he was a natural move. He wanted to, he was a drummer who'd been working on the road for years and was kind of getting to that age and that time where he was just going, you know what? I want to get off the road. I love to play. Still love being around drums and music. And he also had some great recording skills and gear skills and tech skills. So we thought he's an obvious guy to hire to maintain our drum collection. We've got like 65 drum kits and about 125 snare drums and Yeah, it's pretty fun going into the drum room. It's ridiculous. Um, so, he, and that's operations manager. And then what, and your title is? Studio manager. Studio manager. So yeah. what, what's the, what's the difference between operations manager and studio oh, manager? Um, I'm basically the guy who books the studios and cuts the deals and all that kind of stuff and talks to people about what's available schedule wise and all that and coordinating all of that. Um, so operations manager is the guy who sees, who's got to decipher my notes on the calendar and on the session notes and stuff like that, where I go, okay, this is, um, they're tracking today. They need a piano tuning before the session. Um, they're going to use one of our drum kits or maybe just our snare drums, all that kind of stuff. They're going to use our bass amp. Then he'll make, he'll make, bring in all their own stuff. Make sure that stuff actually happens. In and he deciphers all of that and then translates it to the actual setup. And he's also the guy who talks to the engineer, whether the engineer is coming from the outside or if it's somebody that we're, um, that we're hiring to engineer as well as the assistant. Um, what are some of the tools that you guys use to communicate really well? Then iPhones and um, as funny as it sounds, um, Google Calendar or just Apple iCal, depending yeah. on what you want, you can make them work together. So my main tool for coordinating that kind of stuff is the just a, uh, an Apple iCal. Um, you talked about uh, him interpreting your notes. What's mm -hmm. a way, where, where do your notes go that you find is really useful? They're usually on the calendar or else it's just a text between me, and Polly and myself, and where I just say, um, hey, that some session he may already know about that's happening. I'll just say, hey, they decided they would need a piano tuning tomorrow. I'll just text that to him. Right. So, so something as like simple that. as adding a session to a calendar, whether it's a Google calendar or an yeah, Apple calendar. The notes section. And then, then in the notes element, usually at the bottom there, Correct. you can just put all the details about yeah. it. Well, I just have a cut and paste thing that I just drop into the notes that says, um, it just says hold or confirmed. Like if the date's on hold on the calendar, it'll say Studio A, Lid Shaw, hold. That's right. On a particular day. here, Rockstar. Studio A, Lid Shaw, hold <laughs> forever. <laughs> Mine, 80, Neve eighty seventy eight baby. Um, but I'm, that's I'm kind still of trying general... to trying to decide which mix bus to use on that console. B, B, that's yes. the one to use. All right, yeah. yeah. It's got a, Rockstar's. It has dual mix buses. Right on. Yeah. Um. So that those are generally the notes, and it just has all that stuff broken down, and it'll say what studio, 
who the producer is, who the engineer, assistant, artist, billing, of course. So um, Blair, who's our accounts manager, she'll look at those notes. And if I haven't filled it out, if I haven't been prompt and fill that out, she's on my ass about saying, hey, we got to get paid for this, right? So who's who am I sending the invoice to? And um, do you use the invite feature in there and sort of like tag people that are supposed you know to what? know that's about kinda, it? That's kind of irritating. I've, okay. I've learned that. I tried that. And there's a lot of people who go, man, I, all I got to do is look at the calendar. I don't have to be reminded. Right. I know that Tuesday is tomorrow and I'll look at Tuesday on Monday. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Well, or that's if a I good See what's happening next week, obviously, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's a good reminder to know that, that uh, like uh, all the technology that's there is not necessarily what you need to use. You just need to use the right parts of it. Right. Correct. So, and so on that iCal, it just says there's several different calendars listed along the left side, and it's just studio, it just says A, B, C, D, E, F, and it goes down the list. And then there's other stuff on there sometimes too, like there's different categories that I use only for my own personal use and maybe share with a select few people, that kind of stuff. Right So on. it works pretty well. Um, so no big dry erase board in the, no, know, not in really the, because the staff I've, hallway I've or anything? Separate, I've got two screens on my desk and I've got an iMac and then a, an additional screen to the right that the calendar sits on pretty much all the time. And somebody says, hey, I'm looking at, you know, it's June now. And somebody says, I'm looking at some dates in September. Are these open? And then I just flip over to September and see what's there. And they go, I want to hold these three days. And you just pencil them in. And um, and as the dates come up, I don't really even set reminders for those that much unless it's like extremely important about whatever it is. Right, right. Um, uh, do you have any tips for the rock stars about... Um, smart things that you've learned about putting uh, dates on hold for, for clients? You oh, know, yeah. Any advice? I mean, you don't ever want a double booking. Right. I've had a couple of very close calls. And um, one time, fortunately, I was mistaken and had put the wrong date on the calendar and saved myself by an error. So um, you don't ever want a double booking because what that means is you're either calling a competition studio at the very last minute, who's possibly already booked. And then it's just your ass, you know, yeah. and your reputation. Yeah, so double check yourself all the time. And it's, don't always feel like you have to rely on someone else to cover you for you. And I've gotten called on it a few times where, you know, somebody looks at the calendar and go, hey, do you realize you put this on here and this is here and there's two things over the top of each other or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Boy, it's so, tough. You saw my calendar when you walked in. Yeah. I, very and, similar looking. And you saw me needing reading glasses, too. So it's yeah. a lot to look at sometimes. Very similar looking. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we're also living in a world of um, if I look at it on my computer screen, it's a lot easier to interpret than if I look at it on my phone. True. And, yeah. and you know, I remember a long time ago thinking like, boy, it'll be so great when you can, when somebody calls me and I'm out and about and my phone will allow me to put something in the calendar and, you know, give an answer to something. And some of that exists, but some of it, I'm just like, I'm just going to have to look at this on a better yeah. screen, you know, to yeah. really give an answer to. And it does, even even now when I put a date in the calendar on my phone, as soon as possible, I'll go back, back to my computer or my laptop of wherever I'm closest to, just to make sure that it's in there. Because there have been a few times, like I, for some reason, just noticed a couple of bugs on the iPhone that doesn't take as well yeah, as, it's sure. on a, as it is on a de desktop. Sure. Um, well, I know for some, uh, you know, some of our listeners, they're, you know, actually 
for all of our listeners, they probably aren't managing a studio sure, quite as no, big as Blackbird. Thinking, this is really <laughs> exciting information for people who are talking about iCal no, and all that. No, no, actually, it's, it actually is because that's the kind of stuff we love because we're trying to figure out how to manage our, our studios and, you know. Sure make things more efficient. Yeah. And think ahead. Um, that's the best advice I can do is think, think ahead. ahead because if you're not booked ahead of time, you know, you can't, it's really hard to book seven rooms the week before and try to fill them up. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. You know, well, so you're always so, thinking ahead kind of going, Oh, there's a hole there and studio A is open and so on. Just look ahead and plan ahead. So pays well, off. So that is one of the struggles when you only have one studio and then somebody puts it on hold and then you're like, or, you know, but then maybe they cancel and right. now all of a sudden you don't know you what know, to do. The motivation there is to get a deposit and get a non-refundable deposit after a certain period of time. Um, you just have to do it that way. And some people think you're think you're a jerk for doing it, but it's really just business. You have to do it that way. Yeah. Well, I know there's no uh, there's no kind of commitment quite like the commitment of actually paying for something. Yeah. You know, you're right. And even. A, a little bit of a uh, commitment, you know, in, in the internet world, when they're talking about um, people interacting with websites and stuff, there are terms like micro commitments and any, any little bit of commitment that somebody makes is that much more security that there's going to be follow through too. So yep. I think sometimes the struggle when you're a small studio is like, you know, should you, uh, should you get a deposit? Well, what should that deposit look like? And should, is it like, half up, half now? Is it a little bit or mm -hmm. whatever? And I think part of the answer is, you know, even a tiny deposit that's not refundable is going to increase your odds tremendously that somebody's right. going to follow through because people just don't want to let go of 50 bucks or a hundred bucks if you're a small right. studio. Well, know? the deposits are in our world, it's, um, it's 50%. And that means, you know, you know that they're committed. Um, and there are the times when it does fall through, you know, where the singer gets sick or, you know, who knows what, what happens. Yeah. Um, I you, find those are good times for conversations and just come up with a custom solution if you can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But there's ways to work around that kind of stuff. And a lot of times, even with like the major labels who are very steady clients of ours, um, you don't ask for a deposit. They just kind of laugh at you if you do that. Right, I would think. Right. But, um, well, I mean, I think it's worth, committed, it's worth pointing know. out too, that there, there is a difference in, in the people you work with between, people who have built up a very trusting, you know, a great deal of trust in the relationship mm -hmm. and you know you can count on sure. them doing what they're saying they're going to do versus situations where it's more intermittent. Maybe maybe you trust them, but it's intermittent. Yeah. Or maybe it's people you just simply never worked with well, before. It's, and it's usually not the label so much that, I mean, we, we do trust that element of it, but it's usually the producer or the coordinator for that producer that's calling and you go, Oh, that guy, you know, he works here all the time. They're not going to screw us. And well, 95% of the time that doesn't happen. But, you know, there are those times. times, like I said, whether it's a singer sick or whatever happens, maybe the songs aren't ready, but the coordinators and the managers of those artists and stuff are aware that there's a lot of stuff on the line for us and them. So the sooner they let us know that they have to cancel or that they want to confirm, the better for everybody. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, what are some other big challenges of running a studio you um, want to share? Is keeping the room books in a, in a facility like that. It's, it's a challenge every day. Yeah. Um, that's my job. You know, that's there's what real, I do. There's significant overhead. And knowing who to call to and who to email and who to talk to and who to take to lunch and all that fun stuff, which is, it is, it's really fun. And that's part of the challenge of doing the job. Um, but it's, uh, 
it's just doing that, knowing kind of following people and knowing what band might be on the road. And you kind of go, well, those guys aren't going to come in and track next week or two months from now they're, they're on their tour. Um, just little things like that. Also just knowing people in those different companies and knowing independence as well. Cause we get a lot of independence coming in just as much as major label and major name acts and stuff. Yeah. Um, What's it, what do you feel like the balance there? is between uh, repeat clients versus new clients? What's the balance? Yeah. Do you get a lot of, um, do people tend to come and have a great experience and then they mm -hmm. just want to come back and, and then they, you know, there's a their lot of that. Going well I'd say it's probably 60, 40, 60 of return, maybe 40 of new stuff. There's new clients all the time. And um, your hope is to win over, you know, what I call them frequent flyers, you know, right. just the regulars <laughs> who come back again and kind of go, man, that was great. We just had a guy come in the studio or a, a band come in the studio on Saturday had never recorded there before. And he was just like itching to come back. So um, it, we booked him in this coming Friday. So he said, That's man, great. we got to come back. We got to be there. So you love to hear that. And you know that you've done your job right. Not just me, but my staff just got done kicking ass and doing what they're supposed to do. So one of the things that you guys have at Blackbird, of course, is Blackbird Academy. Mm-hmm. Do you sometimes go in and, and uh, teach the students and, and do a lecture with them to just kind of um, talk about I managing studios? I don't lecture all? the students too often. Once in a while, I'll also go to like Belmont and I've gone to Lipscomb and places like that to different universities and just tell them what I do. Um, I don't talk to the classes often. Um, man, their guy, uh, Mark Rubel, who is sensational at getting a lot of really great guests in there. Who yeah, indeed. I admittedly pale in comparison to some of the rock stars speaking of that he brings in. It's pretty awesome. Um, and they have the ability to Skype people in and stuff like that, which is really amazing. Yeah. And sometimes he'll come to me and he'll go, man, we had these two engineers were our Skype guests this morning. And this guy walked in in the afternoon to, to the class. And they're cool all these massive names in the business. And you go, how, how does that guy pull that off? It's amazing. Mark so. is, um, Gently persistent. Yeah. Yeah, it's well put. Yeah. He's a great guy. I love that yeah, guy. He's, he's awesome. Amazing. He's awesome. Super brain too, man. And he knows tons of people in in every capacity of the business. So I've, I've he's definitely, able to use those resources and go, well, if I can't get a hold of this person, then I'll call that guy. You know, and it, yeah. just his guest list in there to talk to the students and inspire them is pretty amazing. Well, I'm pretty sure I've thanked Mark Rubel at the beginning of this podcast for making the introduction more than anybody. <laughs> so so I've, he, he's been responsible for helping me um, Is that right? get a lot of guests on the show for sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you find, uh, you know, younger people, students, either misconceptions that they have about the way a studio runs um, that, that you want to be, give some good advice around or... Um, you know, stuff that you find you're repeatedly teaching people about um, how, how to manage a studio. Uh, I don't know about first and foremost, but a big deal with us is respecting the gear. Um, that's a huge thing because one thing you have to remember, the gear that we have, as we talked about earlier, is a massive investment. And some of it, or a lot of it, is very old equipment. And it needs to be cared for and nurtured and maintained and um, it's very valuable and one slip of the hand could make it lose its value uh, or a tremendous part of its value. So um, 
I won't say that it never happens, but occasionally a uh, twelve or $15,000 tube mic gets dropped or thread gets stripped on the mount. And that's a... It's real, real world usage in yeah, a studio. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, studios are... And you have to you have to sign off on that and kind of go, well, yeah, you know, that does happen. And it, instead of it getting set up five times last week, it got set up 15 times. Um, yeah. So that, you know, it is wear and tear and you have to well, it's a approach tricky, it that way. Tricky balance, too, because the studio itself and the equipment that we use, some of it is is cheap and replaceable. Mm -hmm. And some of it is incredibly expensive and irreplaceable. Right. Um, and some of it, you know, that one thing getting damaged just meant we lost all the money we made on the session or whatever. And Good point. Yeah. yeah and and um, yet the context, what we're trying to capture with this a lot of times is rock and roll. It's like it's yeah. chaos and it's destruction in creative expression. Yeah. And so it's tricky to figure out that balance. I mean, like, well, so you got cables running all over the place and, and people who are, uh, you know, sometimes people are drinking and, and yeah. doing other things. And Don't roll road cases over the cables. That was one of the early things I learned in Carnage, yeah. you know, lift the wheels over it. Yeah, actually, give, give us a list of, of details that people need to remember about how to treat the equipment well. Well, respect it, you know, because this is your method of making a living. Um, Don't sit your chair leg on top of the mic. Cable. Right, right. Yeah, just respect the gear and know that whether it's yours or not, somebody's making a living doing this. And um, another thing, if it's your session that you're on and you're abusing the mic or the compressor or the guitar amp or whatever it is, that might slow the session down. And... Um, just take care of stuff. Take Where do our drinks go in a studio? Excuse me, who the... Where do our drinks go in a studio? Away from the console, out of the <laughs> control right. room, if at all possible, or toward the back of the control room where there's no gear. Uh, can you remember any of stories of terrible, uh, of unfortunate accidents in the studio where, where um, something did get damaged? Yeah, names were going With no names. I, yeah, names yeah, I do know that there was a pretty heavy-duty session going on one day in one of the studios, and... Um, one of the artists was known for his martinis, and um, I think his girlfriend or wife was there. I'm not sure who it was. I wasn't there when it happened. But um, apparently she'd had a few too many and stood near the console and dumped one of the martinis into the faders ah. or somewhere on the corner of the desk. And it was a kind of a session-ending buzzkill. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, think, I think a glass of champagne once ended up in the faders over at Alex the Great when I was there during one of their very famous um, New Year's Eve parties right. back in the day. I've been, I've been fortunate here. I, I find that um, one nice thing about having a studio and inviting people that you, you like and, you know, are musicians and making records is uh, maybe it's just lucky, but I feel like there's a, an aura of general respect for a yeah. studio when people come over, especially if you clean it up and make mm. it look nice before they get it's here. It's kind of a know? natural move too, you know, where people who know who've been in studios they know you don't go near the console or near the gear racks with yeah. with a drink or with food or anything. Lunch. I still put big, fat, no drinks on the piano signs on sure. the piano. Yeah, I don't care that it there. looks ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Good move. Just, just a, like, a pleasant reminder. You I know? mean, you're welcome to put a drink on the piano if you happen to have $30,000 in your wallet. <laughs> but if you don't, then please don't put a drink on the piano. That's right. And that's what the little side table's for over there beside the piano bench, right? Right, right. So, um, But and, yeah, respect the gear. That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, so when I have interns and we're talking about pushing buttons, um, you know, like turning off 
turning the Pro Tools on and, and, and off, I just say, push that button. Don't hit that button like you're cool. You know, like push that button gently and respectfully right like you would like that button to work a million more times. Yeah, you know, that's great. Just, I'm not sure how long that lasts. I think that'll last me quite a while. A million button pushes should last oh a long gosh, time. Oh my gosh, yeah. Be- because it's easy to forget that stuff. And yeah. I mean, again, it's like... It'd be a know, hardware upgrade before there's... The you know before you gotta replace whatever's got the button on it. Yeah. Now if you're if you're playing too. a chord um, on the guitar or you're doing a drum fill, man, nail that drum fill. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. You know. Maybe don't stick your stick through the drum head, but yeah. don't hold back. Right. The drums are to be hit. Yeah. When you're turning the knobs on stuff, you know, there's a tendency to take a knob <laughs> and go like and like go through ten clicks to get it up high real fast and everything. No, don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to last very long if you change yeah, it that way. Yeah, it's a good lesson. Definitely yeah. is. Um, okay, so what about some other uh, studio lessons? Um, let's talk about um, wisdoms in terms of managing the finances of a studio. Um, I know, oh I know, you went straight from you know other aspects of it straight to a massive studio. So maybe you don't have smaller well, just, studio experience stories to share. But. Um, The yeah, wow. The I mean, how do you budget? How do you budget as a business? How do you make sure that there's enough money um, to do the things you need to do? That's an ongoing thing, and you just have to kind of see, just compare what your outgoing is to your income incoming. You know, you have to. It's like budgeting anything else, like a household and stuff like that. You know, have you always been good at budgeting? I mean, are you? Uh, is do you go straight to QuickBooks no. and things like that, or <laughs> no? do do you? Um, have you found yourself in positions where, you know, somebody else is a, a bookkeeper and yeah, take care yeah, of that stuff? Yeah, that's usually the case. That's what I was getting at. I was, I was about to say, um, somebody else is that, is the bookkeeper and monitors the funds and all of that. But I definitely keep an eye on it and like to see where it's going and, and what we're spending on what. Otherwise, if you have no concept of that, then... Well, let's draw an analogy. If it's a small studio, an individual um, owner studio... Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe their their bookkeeper is just a QuickBooks account online or something sure. like that. Meanwhile, whether it's a live bookkeeper or it's a QuickBooks computer program, it's some something's coming back at you, and maybe it's like a, a profit and loss statement right. or something like that. Right. Uh, so you still have maybe been in the position of interpreting that and making decisions about stuff. Sure. What are things um, that come to mind for you about interpreting something like that? About making sure that that there's enough coming in and and what's going out. Well, monitoring that and then looking where the money's actually going and trying to prevent that from happening again if it's way too much going out. Um, sometimes you are forced to spend what you have to spend just because it might be we've got to upgrade the Pro Tools rig because right. we've got to keep up with the Joneses, that kind of stuff. Well, in our case, we've got about 10 of them and it's ridiculous. Plus, we've got in the academy and the studio are sort of separate, but like the academy has 30 of them. And wow. yeah, so they have to do upgrades too. And I'm sure I, I don't really get into the finances of that so much, but I think they've got some educational access as far as um, adjusted rates and costs of plugins and software and that kind of stuff. Have you ever felt but, stuck trying to make a decision? Like you're trying to know the perfect answer before you make the decision and. In the, you mean for a studio business decision? Yeah, about any business decision and finances. Um, As we just said, I don't usually make all of those decisions. I'm influential and I can consult about that, but really it's up to the owner. Right. And it's up to the owner and the bookkeeper working things out. 
Um, I'm on the outside of that, and I definitely have some input on it, but ultimately it comes down to the owner because it's his business, yeah, and he gets to make the decisions whether we so you, you may get another microphone pass or it on yeah, you, uh, or collate not. the report and pass it along correct with yeah. all the right info This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle bundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, one thing is, you know, you were, you were a drummer who um, sort of went through a series of different job opportunities and now you're a studio manager. Uh, and I wonder if you have any comments on whether or not you find any challenges with musicians and engineers working on other aspects of um, the of recording, I guess. So, like for example, is it is it always a good fit for a musician to potentially be a studio manager, or are there sometimes conflicts where you know you've seen people who are taking on jobs in the music biz, but really they just they should stick to music because that's what the, what they want to be doing? Um, yes and no, because I think there's some successes of people who have done that and. I guess we could also throw producers into that clump, too, because um, a lot of our clients are producer players who come in and they may be producing the session, but they're also the guitar player. And they may be sitting in the control room playing guitar on the session um, as they produce. Mm -hmm. And some are really good at that and some probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, I guess that that would probably be also wearing too many hats. Right, right. Trying to do it all. Um, leave the guitar playing to the guitar player and stick in here and produce. Um, there's also, for that matter, engineer producers who do the same thing. And some are really good at it and some are should keep that separate as well. Um, and could do both of them well, but they should need to keep them separate, you know. Yeah. Like either produce this session or engineer it. Um, what are some typical sort of paths through the studio career um, that you've seen? Maybe at Blackbird. I mean, I know you have you um, have you have top world class producers and engineers, mm -hmm. and you also have students that are studying right now. Right. And you have interns and stuff. We is have, there, is we there have sort a lot of, a path? of um, clients now, like engineer clients and a couple of producers who mostly engineers who have come up through the whole Blackbird ladder, if you will. Um, Several people that I still call on to be an engineer on sessions, if um, they're still on our first call list, are people who started as an intern years years ago, um, maybe coming from another school or coming from our academy, 
and they work their way like everybody else. And we see that as a great vetting process for um, people who you can kind of tell when somebody's got it and wants to do it. You I know agree. what I mean? Um, and you kind of get that pretty quickly. Uh, we've got interns who have worked their way to um, front desk or night manager kind of position. And then um, also we have weekend managers and stuff like that. And those are some of the same people. And you can see that desire to do what they do and, and that they do have goals in mind. And those are also some of the people when they're not on our schedule, they're off engineering somewhere on some demo session or on some session there might even be tracking somewhere in another studio. So you watch for those people and watch that kind of activity and that genuine desire to work and do to work in our business. Let me ask you this question. So for, for people, for rock stars who are listening to this and thinking about the, um, you know, being an intern or, you know, what, what, what are some good skills to have as an intern? What are some things that you see uh, commonalities, again, that, that do make an intern stand out as they seem, um, they seem I, to be a really good fit? First of all, I think the passion of wanting to do it, obviously. But then there's also paying attention to the industry that you're working in. Um, pay attention to who's coming in the studio. Look at the schedule and see who's working and who works on what sessions and stuff like that. But also keep an eye on the industry itself and the move, looking for movers and shakers in the business. That's a pretty big deal. Um, I read trades every day, uh, whether it's on a website or I pick up Mix Magazine or any of those like Tape Op, which is one of my favorites. Um, any of those magazines, just follow that stuff. Sometimes it's, uh, the great thing about some of those magazines is they'll talk to legends in the business, but then also there's those little side articles where you see up and coming engineers and producers and musicians. And that's always interesting to know, to watch where those people are and where they might be next year or five years from now. So keep up with that. Keep up with, um, if you're interested in getting in the mainstream part of the business, um, keep an eye on billboard charts in every genre because there's so many things that cross over now and you never know who's going to come from hip hop to country. I'm serious. I mean, it really happens and um, nothing wrong with it because there's some really cool stuff that's happened when that kind of stuff kind of cross pollinates different genres. Um, some really great stuff has come as a result of that. So watch the trades um, and there's one called... Um, worldwide music, I think is one of them. And there's another, uh, I'll have to, I'll probably have to follow up with you on that. And I'll have to send you some of the stuff that I read online. Okay. Um, and I just get the daily email updates from those. And it's always good to skim across them because you're always going to run across something pretty interesting. Um, so. You know, you've also seen a lot of people go from intern to assistant, mm -hmm. maybe at Blackbird. Um, are there qualities that seem to make uh, assistance really exceptionally good assistance or are there, um, you know, actions that assistants take repeatedly that make them really good assistance? It's, um, it's the old, the old words of self-starter, you know, the people who are motivated and who really care and really want to learn and you see them retain that, yeah. um, that learning. How about, how about the opposite? If I flip that question on its head, what are some things that you've seen um, not work, you know, 
be, be an indicator that that's not going to be a very good assistant. Um, you know, it's you see a lot of people that you know probably aren't going to go anywhere that they're constantly on their phone sitting in a chair, not looking for something to do or not being looking around, watching for things to happen. Because especially in a studio like ours, there's traffic there all the time. There's people in and out. And um, <clears throat> it's kind of a pet peeve of mine if somebody's at the front desk. And, and Amber, who's our front desk person right now, she's our client services and intern wrangler. And she's amazing. She pays attention. She knows who's in what studio. Even <laughs> if I forget who's in what studio, she'll go, oh, no, that they're in Studio B. They're not in the other studio. But um, pay attention to who's there. Look at the calendar. See who's working. Um, understand that this guy's a guitar player. He's not the drummer in this studio. He's the guitar player going there. So sometimes people will come in the front door and they're on the wrong side of the studio complex. You have to know, hey, I'm looking for this artist session or I'm looking for this guy, for this engineer. Um, those kind of people should be paying attention to the calendar and knowing what's going on. Because yeah. there's daily sheets out there all the time that sure, say... Sure. What's going on? So anybody who pays attention and um, is eager to learn and eager to help. Um, I think eager to help is a really critical aspect yeah. to that, too. Yeah. I find that the that interns that really go places are ones that um, treat <clears throat> everything that's going on around them as so important that they want to help enable that to go really well. So, like, if the, you know, if I'm running a session and an intern's helping me, and they really pay attention to what I'm trying to accomplish so that that's their goal. Yeah. And, it doesn't and matter. retain it. And retain it. It's <laughs> yeah. a big deal, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you want them, you really want to just, I mean, if it's a complicated task or something or a multi-level task of some sort, it's okay if they say, man, I, I got this done. I'm not sure what to do now because you've only shown it to them once. But if it's like one thing, like, you know, they should be able to get that pretty quickly. Yeah. If it's a pretty simple task. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times when I when an intern asks me a question, I just say, "You know what? I have great confidence in you that you'll be able to figure it out." <laughs> that's you know, and that's a good motivator for him too. You know, there's a really good thing that um, a producer who was in the studio one time, and I've heard him say it multiple times since, when he said, um, "You know, like our our interns or the second engineers, the assistants and stuff, depends on who's available. They take the food orders. Like if it's time for lunch." Somebody grabs a pad of paper and it's usually the assistant or if it's just an engineer on the gig, then they'll call the front desk and an intern will run back there with a legal pad and write down the lunch order. Um, and he said, if you can't get my lunch order right, I don't ever want to work with you yeah. because I may give you another task that's got three things on it or 10 things. And if you screw up and you put mustard on my hamburger, I'm not going to be very happy. That means you're probably going to screw something else up. Yeah, You're not that paying attention when I said... I want mustard and no pickle on my on my sandwich. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's it seems like such a um, I don't know. It seems like such a just a, a saying that you hear. But the truth is, it's like if you if you don't consider the details of getting everybody lunch important and yep. and making sure everybody has a great experience there, why in the world would anybody believe that you would take? The details of getting a mix right or the the recording right and yeah. make sure everybody had a great experience. Yep. You know? there's, a, there's another um, engineer producer that works at our place quite a bit. <clears throat> and everybody probably knows him. I'll just go ahead and say his name because he's awesome. His name's Nick, Nico Bolas. Wonderful guy. Amazing engineer. And, and he's become a great friend over the years after being at Blackbird. 
And he has this thing, and I haven't heard about him doing it lately, but he had a thing for a while that um, he's a big Waffle House fan. He loves Waffle House. So um, it started some years ago, I'm sure. But uh, somebody that's in the room who's not paying attention, he's a big fan of inviting in interns and having them observe the session and giving somebody an opportunity. And he, he may find somebody who's great that way. You know, he never knows who's he, who he's going to run across. Yeah. So all he wants is that. He said, you can come in the studio, you can observe the session, but you have to stay in your chair and don't get out of it unless I say, come here and do this or that kind of stuff. So, and stay quiet, don't make comments. So um, I guess one example was somebody picked up their phone and found it was more important to look at their phone than it was to pay attention to what was going on in the session. And he walked over to his backpack, pulls out a Waffle House application and said, here, you're probably going to need this. Um, you might as well leave now cause, and take this with you because you'll need this because you'll never make it as an engineer. So the Waffle House application kind of became a running joke. And he goes, dude, it works. It works every time um, because it's somebody's last opportunity. You know, if it's, it's the same thing. If you're not paying attention, you're telling me right away that you're, you don't care. Yeah. You, yeah. You're not serious about wanting to do this. And it could be probably applied to about anything outside of the recording studio as well. Yeah. And I will say that, that being an intern and assisting in the studio can get pretty boring at times. Oh, I'm sure. It can uh, get yeah. incredibly boring at some, sometimes. Absolutely. And, and there's nothing sleepier sometimes than sitting there Especially when the boring the stuff's morning. happening. Yeah, you know? There's a guitar overdub going and the guitar player goes, give me another one. Let me try again. Yeah. All right. I got this. Let me do it again. But, you know, somebody has to be paying very, very close attention in that moment. And in what you just described... It starts with the guitar player who's like acutely paying attention to whether it was performed right. Right. And then next up is the uh, the engineer who's trying to you know keep up with the guitar player and, and the producer and then the, the sure. assistants and everything. Uh, let's talk about the stuff in between the guitar player and the engineer. <clears throat> There's a bunch of gear that needs to be keeping sure. up with everything too. Yep. What have you learned about maintaining a studio as a studio manager and making sure that everything's running great? What are some systems that make sure that the things that aren't working perfectly get taken care of, yep. don't get you know lost in the shuffle, because there must be a, one hell of a shuffle going on. Long, long before your session starts, check everything. Don't assume that it's going to work when you hit record and everything's just going to magically come on and pass signal. <clears throat> and that's what our assistants and the people who help them set up the sessions, usually the night before, if it's a tracking date, it takes about three to four hours to set up a standard tracking date in one of our tracking rooms. And that is everything all the way from cartridge coming in to deliver the drums or the guitar amps and so on, while the assistant's in there running cables, putting mic stands in place around the drum rug and all that kind of stuff. And then once they're in place, they're clicking out mics, making sure that um, everything's passing signal and, you know, Obviously, before that, everything's been patched in and so on. You just said clicking out mics. Can you can you break that down? What does that mean? Um, they're out there with a um, phase clicker, and they're standing. The assistant or the intern is out there by the microphone while the engineer is listening and making sure that that microphone is working, it's functioning, and everything in the chain is working. Um, have so. you used a phase clicker yourself? Are you familiar with the tech? I have not. Okay. Right. I mean, I have, but it's just like, that's not my gig and I don't yeah. even pay attention to that All anymore. Right, take it, take it. Um, I had an intern here who 
told me about those. I didn't even know they existed. And then I got one and I messed with it a little bit, but I, I still have it. I might need to break it back yeah. out and try it out. Um, I found I go through a phase checking process when I record drums, but um, it's it's an interesting concept. And and I think back to like those pictures of, of Abbey Road where you see the engineer like in the lab coat. Yeah, in the lab <laughs> coat, like playing white noise into a microphone or something out on the yeah. floor. And they, they set all the levels for the orchestral session ahead of time. Yeah. You know, it's and based on. And they also have a little uh, click generator in them. And sometimes the quick way to just check that all the mics are functioning is by going around, the, leaving that in the room just by itself sitting on the floor or something, and then just checking each individual mic line, Yeah, making sure that the click is coming through the mic line. And That's when I was first uh, at Alex the Great and I would um, set up for sessions, I'd want to line check everything. And I'd take the Casio SK-1 keyboard and I'd yep. put it in demo mode and I'd go set that on a chair. <laughs> and then I'd just go around and I'd listen to make sure I was getting signal through every single one of the drum mics. Because, uh, well, you know, with ADATs, we had meters and, and tape machine too. But, um, you know, it's just uh, that was, you know, think anything, make it easy for yourself. Because yeah. sometimes you don't have an assistant, you know, sometimes right. you're, you're the only one doing it. You got to figure out a clever way to make sure you're getting sounds. Yep. Um, okay. So now that's wise advice setting up the night before, making sure everything's working before the session, mm-hmm. even pressing record on the 24 tracks in Pro Tools and making sure that, hey, Pro Tools still records. Right. It recorded yesterday, mm-hmm. but look, it magically records today too. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what about when something does break? Is there a system that makes sure that that broken thing gets fixed and, you know, brought in, back to the in session? In the perfect world, there is a system. Um, and that is, admittedly, it can be a headache once in a while where um, – it's one of our chief tech's gripes, you know, and I, it's totally, it's legitimate. Some of the problems in the studio admittedly also are that there are so many pieces of gear and so many people handling them from time to time. Sometimes people don't think about it and they see a piece of gear is broken and either they're too lazy, they don't care, they don't know, they don't recognize it. All those reasons are one of them. Um, and they put it back on the shelf. And that when I was in the rental department, and it still is as a studio, as a manager or whatever, when I hear about it, it just irks me, man. I just hate this. Somebody putting a non-functioning piece of gear back on the shelf um, because my story always was in the rental department, if it's on the shelf or it's in the mic locker, it works. If it doesn't work, it should be in the tech shop with a tech report by the person who found the problem saying the knob is broken, the power switch is broken, or um, microphone's not passing signal, don't know what, drop the microphone, whatever it might be. Um, you I, have to, on the tech reports, it has to report the date, the time, the person, what happened, what they think happened, what they think might be the problem if they know. Um, you know, it's just, it saves so much time Instead of just seeing if the tech walks into the shop and there's a microphone laying there on the on the right sh- on the bench, and he looks at it and goes, "Okay, what's that?" And then it's up to him to troubleshoot it. No, it's not. It should save so much time by just having that tech report there, and then he knows what to look for. Oh, it's not passing signal. It could be any number of things, and so on. Well, I know one of the challenges for me on sessions is when you're setting up for things. A lot of times, you you have to move very quickly. And if something's not working, you just 
shove it to the side and, and uh, move to the next thing that works. And right. I'm always trying to make sure that that thing that just got shoved to the side, is like, at, at least throw a piece of tape around it. Some right. indicator that that's not the, you know, that that's not a good, you know, it's not good mic cable, for so example. So maybe somebody else that just comes along and needs another mic for something or... Yeah, and so, and uh, you know, one trick I might do is um, a, a mic cable that's properly coiled and put away. Um, I, I still do the, you know, coil it and then I do, you know, a gentle single knot. Right. To close to the coil. That that's a bad cable. No, no, the gentle single knot is a good cable. Oh, that's, sorry. Okay. That's what cool. But a double knot. If you knot one way and then knot it the other way, that that might be a code for right. a bad cable. Right. Um, and then also just making sure, you know, it doesn't get set down out there on the floor so that at cleanup time it goes back up on the thing and somebody didn't even know it was broken. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, you know, the, another challenge too is people saying things are broken and they're not broken. True. Yeah. You know, a lot of yeah. things people are like, Oh, that's a bad cable. It's like, it's not a bad cable. It's fine. It was because this other thing was hooked up right. wrong. And um, the, the one thing that I say at the studio frequently too, when this kind of stuff comes up, it's a whole lot more trouble for you once we find out that you didn't report the problem than it is. If you just say, I dropped the tube mic and then at least we know what happened and what might be wrong with it and all that kind of stuff. So it's just more of a hassle and more trouble than if nobody says anything and just puts it back in the mic locker. Right. That's Definitely. so irritating. Yeah. I think somebody's inclination might be like, oh my gosh, I dropped it. That's a, an expensive fix. Nowhere near as expensive as the failed session later on because that mic wasn't yeah, working. <laughs> because then you're going to be slowing somebody else down, you know, and then you're just going to cost them time, money, whatever it is down the road. Well, so let me jump to um, some closing questions with you, sure. Ralph, if you don't mind. Because um, we're we're nearing the end of the wow, show here. We're almost done. I know we're almost done. Can you believe Just got it? Started. Um, <laughs> these are our quick jam session questions, so you can give me quick answers as if, as you want. Okay. Um, but when you started out in recording, what do you feel like was holding you back? Well, I guess recording or uh, you know, music biz. Yeah, I th I think the only thing that holds you back is you. You know, um, having the drive and the desire to do something is, you know, that keeps you going. Kept me going. Don't I be just, afraid of pen and paper and writing down names and phone numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. And then calling them later. I still do it. I still do it in my in my Apple address book. I even, when somebody calls me, I write down in the notes the date they called me and what it was about. That way I can refer back and go, I talked to Lid Shaw in 2005 and he still has that broken U87 he hasn't fixed. All right. That's a cool little tip. So you use the Apple address book to keep organized. And then there's yep. a note section with each address where you can just take notes about yep. your yep. ongoing com conversation. Yeah. I'm sure Google or Android phones have the same thing in their address book, but yeah. Um, that way I've always got a reference because sometimes my phone rings and it's got somebody's name in there and I go, who is that? I don't, I sound familiar. And then, um, I mean, I'll answer the phone of course, but it's a good refresher just to know who it is. Or if somebody texts me, I can look up that number um, or look up that name and find out. Here's oh. a good geeky tip to go with that. So um, one of the concerns I had, um, because, you know, one way when somebody else needs that contact, usually on the phone, you go on your Apple and you find that contact and you say share contact and text it over to so-and-so. And now they got the contact. And I was always like, did I just text them all the personal notes that were yeah, inside that's the contact? Yeah, a good point. I've thought about that before, too. But I tested it recently, and it, it does not send the personal notes. It doesn't? Yeah. 
okay. should be safe to go. But Good you might you might run one test just before you send yeah. it off, just yeah. in case. Yeah, so I don't send them Lidshaw's number. Yeah, I mean, I was always idiot afraid. in the yeah, notes you, you or like, something. You, you, maybe you had some little <laughs> password in there, some reminder of something. Right. Somebody's social security number. No, right. that never happens. Yeah. But yeah, I just say, you know, stay organized, have the drive to do it. Definitely, yeah. All right. Um, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Um, Stay organized. Never, <laughs> never be afraid not to do bad business. Think about that for a second. Never be afraid not to do bad business. Okay. Um, that's a that's a don't be afraid to say no right. kind of, bit of advice. Right? Exactly. And a, a, a co-worker of mine told me that at Underground Sound years ago, <clears throat> and it's always held true. Uh, it makes complete sense when you think it out. Um, I love that it's a little bit confusing, but it helps you to think it through. Um, but it's so true because who is doing any kind of business, selling widgets or whatever you're doing to get screwed in the long run? <clears throat> um, so the old adage from years ago was cover your ass with paper. Um, it's make sure everything's documented, make sure you've agreed on everything. Um, <clears throat> that's why when I do a quote for a client in an email, I will send all the details. And I remember reviewing it a couple of times with some people that I <clears throat> worked with and they went, man, you're pretty anal about all the details and getting everything sent out to the client, you know, right off the bat. And I went, you know, I don't ever want there to be a question or a comment later on that somebody says, you never told me that. Like yeah. just extra things where somebody says, well, you never told me that there was going to be an assistant on the session. Well, it's right here in the quote, right? You know, yeah. Or that there was going to be a piano piano tuning we had to pay for, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's so hard to just, do sometimes, especially when mm, we live in this world of uh, text messaging and communicating yeah. that way through phones, yeah. because a lot of questions and answers come and go through a simple text, and it's like you have to take that time to follow it up with the email that is, you know, right. everything's laid out clearly. And it's a real convenient fact checker too, like if somebody. Um, or if you're not sure and you are about to call a client and you go, you know what? I think we talked about that in a text or in an email. So that's very convenient for that too. Um, how about a, uh, let's see. Um, well, some of these questions are, are recording related, but, um, I'll ask this one, a hardware tool. So, uh, if it was studio related, you know, you might be inclined to talk about a mic or a compressor mm -hmm. or something like that or a tuner. Um, but is there anything physical for you that just seems to always like make uh, running a business that much easier that you're using all the time? A physical thing? Yes, a, anything, anything that comes to mind. That enhances what I do? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Some, some um, probably uh, what's called a CRM or customer relation management uh, software. Okay. So, so software app, that's fine. But let's talk about that CRM. What is a CRM? Why and how is it useful? Um. It helps you to track customers. Um, it's sort of a glorified contact list database combination of all kinds of stuff. I use one that's called Close, C-L-O-Z-E. And it's um, very dynamic. Um, it's changing. It's a pretty new app. And it's different platform across uh, iPhone, iPad. Right. It works on the whole thing. And I think there's Windows and Android versions and all that kind of stuff. But um, what kind really, of information goes into that regularly and do you extract from it regularly? Just um, names and phone numbers just, and emails? Just recently, Gmail has gotten some of the same um, tools 
And I think you were talking on one of the other podcasts that I listened to, the boomerang thing, um, where it reminds you to call this client back in three days or to check in with them on the email you sent two weeks ago. And you can set that time frame where you can say, or I'll look at my emails in the morning and I'll prioritize them because I, you can imagine I got my email box is full every, all the time. So I just prioritize them and I go, I got to talk to this guy. This is coming up. I got to do this. This one can wait till this afternoon, so on. So, um, and it's really a quick functioning thing. I think there's a free version of it is how I discovered it. I just thought, hey, I'm going to check that out. And um, you pay for it. But for me, it 150 bucks a year or whatever it is, is definitely worth saving my butt for. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, All right. uh, We're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine. Yep. And we're going to go back in time and we're going to find young Rolf rocking out on the drum kit, practicing your um, your double kick drum pedals. And (laughs) you're going to go back and say, you know, knock on the door of the rehearsal space, walking, go, listen, dude, here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? It's the same thing I said before, and I think I'm just kind of driving that home, is how, make sure that you really want to do this. Is this really, do you believe yourself that you can do this? Um, and sometimes I think it's hard for some people to admit to themselves that I'm not a guitar player. I, I'm not that great. And I uh, I think that's a lot of it is um, self-awareness and confidence um, building that confidence and having a reason to believe in yourself. Um, and, uh, it's so important. It's not a, it's not believing that you're better than everyone else, because I really like to say that I work with people. I don't work for somebody. Somebody doesn't work for me. I work with people because, um, unless you're, you know, even somebody like Ed Sheeran, he's out there playing guitar by himself in front of 20,000 people. That's not just him. He's got to have so many other people surrounding him that make him the rock star that he is, you know. And so he didn't get there all by himself either. But he had enough faith in himself that he could stand in front of those 20,000 people and put on one hell of a show. And that's what's amazing to me is that one guy, because once he gets out on that stage by himself, it's up to him. He's got to deliver. He's the guy that's got to deliver, exactly. Every song. And it's got to come across you know, to get that applause at the end, that reward at the end. And That's the, awesome. And the record and the ticket sales. That's awesome. <laughs> well, um, Ralph, thank you. We're coming to the end here, but thank Definitely you so pleasure. much for joining us on the podcast. Man. Great to hang yeah, out I'm with you for a couple of I'm a podcast fan myself of all sorts of podcasts. And then when I heard you were doing yours, I became a fan of the, of the, uh, of this guy. So awesome. Man. It's, well, thank it's you, amazing. Dude. Yeah. So there's some really great shows on here. So it was interesting to hear some of the other, like you interviewed uh, Yoli Mara, yeah, which was awesome because then I kind of get a little inside view, even though I see the inside of a studio all the time. It's interesting to see how somebody else does it yeah, and like how Brandon Bell does it over at Southern Ground. Yeah. And those are all friends of mine, which is pretty fun to hear them. And I'm probably going to suggest some other studio managers for you to bring in because Please do, yeah. they're all going to have different angles of how, you know, mine's not the gospel, Brandon's is and so on, but it works really well for all those people. Well, so let the rock stars know how they can find you online, learn more about you, learn more about Blackbird. Fill up my inbox, my email box <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm real easy to find. Um, 
blackbirdstudio.com is the website. Um, the Blackbird Academy is the academy site, and Blackbird Audio Rentals is the rental site. Um, mine's just real simple. It's Rolf at blackbirdstudio.com, R-O-L-F-F. Um, and uh, my phone number's in there somewhere, too. I'm not going to give that out on the air <laughs> no, necessarily. But, um, call the studio I don't if think you want to talk to me, and they'll take a message or send direct back to me. Um, I take phone calls all day long. Yeah, so. I think your phone might be full at the moment. Too. It is. I've been yeah. watching it fill up here. Yeah. So, Rolf, thanks good. so much for taking time out like this to hang with us, man. I mean, I, you, you are a busy dude, so we really, really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. So. All right, man. We'll see you around the studio. Sounds great to me. All right, cheers. Thanks a lot, Lidge. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.